0: All right, so today what I want to do is kind of start looking at this series called the 13 Attributes of Divine Mercy, which all Jewish people know, well, practicing Jews at least, because they have to say it several times a year. It's called the Sleekot. And so there's multiple times during the year when you say it, and especially during the month of Elul, which is when you're preparing for Rosh Hashanah uh, and Yom Kippur. So all those things, that, that's a really important time. They're saying it multiple times a day during that period of time. And it's it's essentially a confession of faith. Um, but it's a confession of faith in a particular kind of God. It, it's it's not like the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's certainly a part of Jewish confession. The the confession that that comes in this is um, a confession of, of what that God is like, and the the principal attribute that hangs over the top of that is mercy. And so, when we think of mercy in the Christian world, and we think about it a lot, if you if you look at the prayer book Christianity, if you look at uh, any of the services—morning prayer, evening prayer, even compline—but uh, especially service of communion what the most prominent trait that we talk about in our services is mercy he he is almighty and most merciful God there's one place in morning prayer where we we say keep us this day without sin and then the next the response to that by the congregation is have mercy upon us Lord have mercy upon us we have to say it twice because we know yeah I'm not going to make it through the day without sin. And so therefore, the only response is, I, I need mercy from you. And I'm probably going to need a lot of it, so I'm going to double up on that. It's sort of like saying, amen, amen. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's it, that's the... the 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 idea is that that not only did do they are the first people who believe in in ethical monotheism, so there's just one God as opposed to a multiplicity of gods, they also believe that that God has a very particular characteristic that makes him absolutely perfect for humankind. And that is that he's merciful. Uh, because if anything if humanity needs anything, it needs mercy because we're a mess, and we've been a mess forever and ever and ever, and that's what Genesis 3 tells us, as opposed to almost every other religion that I'm aware of, is, is that every every religion takes one thing very seriously. Things aren't the way they ought to be. This is not the world I would create. Things don't operate according to the principles that seem most logical and reasonable. Even though we know that, we violate those sort of reasonable <laughs> propositions all the time. And that's the reason we don't live in a reasonable world <clears throat> or the world that we would prefer. Because we all intuitively know that kind of world where people don't die, where people don't get addicted to drugs, where people's lives don't spin out of control, where there's no divorce, there's no you know uh, untimely death, certainly, but all these other things. There's no car crashes where people are injured and they're less than they ought to be the rest of their lives. There's no wars. There's that's the life in the world that everybody would absolutely agree, far preferable to the world we have. Every world religion that I'm aware of takes very seriously we don't live in the world that would be perfect, that we live in an imperfect, fallen, busted, and broken world that is far from the ideal that we would create for ourselves or for others, frankly. <clears throat> and every other religion basically Says, if you look at all the creation stories, but essentially what it says is, well, there's a reason for that. And that's because the gods are screwed up. Well, an imperfect God can't create a perfect world. And so, what Judaism, what the creation story of Genesis brings to the table is the idea of, uh uh, you got the problem in the wrong place. There's a perfect, good, and great God who created everything, ordered it exactly the way He wanted it, had an intention for the way things were going to work, and intended not just to to do like that song that was running through my head all morning today, says, and that is, God is watching us from a distance. Well, at some level, the answer to that is yes. The Holy Spirit says, well, not quite. I'm here. But... There's a distance between God and humanity that he never intended. So the intention was he'd walk in the garden with them in the cool of the evening. He would be among them. And so he couldn't do that. And there's one simple reason for that, and that is the that holy God and sinful humanity have a hard time coexisting. <laughs> it's just not good because you will surely die. Something new comes into the world at that point. We're not going to live forever in this fallen, broken, sinful state. And so God has to distance himself from humanity because he says in some of the things we're going to read over the next couple of weeks, that I can't be among you because you're stiff necked and you're sinful people. And if I'm among you, you'll all die eventually. So he's got to distance himself from us and so his separation from humanity is an enforced separation so that we can live at all (laughs) so it's a mercy that God separates himself from humanity because his holy existence poses a threat and a danger to sinful humanity all the time it's a great mercy that he gives to his people in exodus that He says, if you'll build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and you'll do it according to exactly the way I tell you to do it, don't make it up as you go along. Don't deviate from the plan. if you do that, and if you'll order your lives in such a way that you'll follow my commandments and you'll worship me, I'll be in the midst of you. And so you get the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that signifies to them God is among us. That would be something phenomenally comforting about being in the wilderness with no real good sense of where you're going next or when you're going to arrive. It would be an incredibly comforting thing to see that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night and know we are not lost. We're exactly where, we, where we're where we intended to be, and we know that because the presence of God is among us. How desperately did they need that? And then the problem is is that that we need that no less desperately. We just get comfortable because we're not in the wilderness in our minds. We're we're moving on a path. We're doing whatever we're doing. And then when we get lost and we get into trouble, and and then we realize we're surrounded by our enemies. And what are we going to do? And how are we going to get out of the mess we're in? And where is God? I'm waiting on you, <laughs> is the answer. I'm waiting on you to get there because he's a merciful God. He doesn't abandon us forever. He doesn't abandon his children. He will let us go our own way sometimes. He'll put obstacles in our path to keep us from going there. But ultimately, if we choose to do it, then we're going to go where we're going to go. But the, the beauty is that he is a merciful God. And we tend to think of mercy, if we think of it at all, as forgiveness for sins maybe i mean there may be other things we think about it but the what the the jewish people see is in exodus 34 6 and 7 they see 13 attributes of divine mercy so what i the reason i want to talk about it is because I, i think what a wonderful thing to to have more to worship god for more to love Him for, because all these attributes of mercy are things we need in our lives, things we need in our world. And so the, the fact that this world doesn't devolve into complete chaos is simply because of the divine mercy of God. So <clears throat> what I want to do is look at those things, and, and we'll begin, with it. so you'll know we're in a church service right now, and we did some readings before. We read Psalm 8. We read Exodus 34, 1-9. And we read um, Acts 7, 44-53, and then in, into that mix, I threw in um, John 20, 24-29, to 29, which is when Judas, or not Judas, when Thomas gets to see Jesus, and Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. And that, I think, is the most important thing that I, that I kind of want to get across in all this, is that what we have to do mostly is stop doubting and believe. But In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, what's happened here to to catch you up on salvation history year to date is in in God has delivered his people from the Egyptians. He's taken them out to Mount Sinai as he promised Moses he would. Moses asked for a sign way back in Exodus 4. He asked for a sign and said, how will I know? that these things will be, that I'll be the deliverer of Israel and that things are going to work out. I'm going to get out of Egypt myself and I'm going to get all these people out of Egypt. And God said, here's the sign I'm going to give you. When you've done these things, you'll worship me here. If I'm Moses, that's not the sign I want. (laughs) I want something today that tells me it's going to be all right. Not something after all these things have happened, but Moses seems okay with it. And so he goes and, and he confronts Pharaoh. We get the plagues. We get all that stuff. God brings him out. He takes him back to Mount Sinai just as he had promised Moses, and he gives him the Ten Commandments. And then he says, all right, so those ten, y'all just work on those for a little bit. I'm going to take Moses further up on the mountain for a while. He's going to be up here with me for about 40 days. He's going to fast during that whole time, and I'm going to give him the rest of the law. So Moses does. He goes up on the mountain. In Exodus 24, he goes up. He leaves a couple of other people in charge we're going to talk about later. He goes up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days. He doesn't show back up when they expect him. They get panicked, and they say, All right, hey, Aaron, up. Get up. Do something useful. Make us God's. Because we don't know what's happened to this Moses. We don't know if he's ever coming back. So, what we need is for you to do something useful. You're a priest, do something priestly, make some gods. So, Aaron says, Okay, I got an idea. <laughs> Give me all the earrings that are in your wife's ear, in your children's ear, bring them to me. So, they bring them to him. So, he takes this stuff, and it says that he puts it all in the fire, and he melts it, and he fashions this thing with a tool. And he comes out with a golden calf. And he holds it up and he says, Hey, behold, Israel, these are your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Cool. He says, All right, let's do this now. Let's just sit on that for a day. And tomorrow we'll have a big old celebration. We're going to have a big party tomorrow. We're going to do some worship. We're going to do some things tomorrow. And we're going to celebrate our gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And they did. And it didn't go so well, so God sent Abraham back down, or not Abraham, Moses back down the mountain, and said, "Hey, your people made a mess of this, and we're going to look at a little more of exactly what God says there." But but Moses comes back down the mountain, smashes the two tablets that God's given him with the Ten Commandments on them, um, grinds up the golden calf, pours it into water, and makes everybody drink it. You're all going to taste the fr- bitter fruit of your sin. And so then he has to go back up the mountain. He's got to get two new tablets. He's got to... So he does all this stuff. He gets a private audience with God. And that's where uh, Exodus 34 is. So <laughs> it's after he does this, he asked the Lord to give him a revelation. And so <clears throat> the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here's the proclamation. The... So that's the revelation. And so what Judaism finds in all that is they find the 13 attributes of divine mercy in those two verses, that proclamation. And so what we're going to do is kind of quickly just do an overview of those, and then we will talk more about them over the next bunch of weeks. So the 13 attributes of mercy, and I'm just reading this, according to the generally accepted opinions are as follows. So the proclamation is the Lord, Adonai. God is merciful before a person sins, even though aware that the future evil lies dormant within him. So there's mercy before we ever sin the first time because God already knows. He's already seen these things before we ever do them. So he's aware of what's going to happen. And so he could break relationship when he has the knowledge that we're going to do that, but he doesn't. He keeps relationship, and that's mercy. So the second divine attribute is the same word, the Lord, Adonai. God is merciful not just before a person sins, but after the sinner has gone astray. So relationship isn't irretrievably broken. Now I need to make clear it's something in here that the Jewish understanding of all this about the relationship not being irretrievably broken at any point along this this continuum. Is, is that so long as the person repents. So it's not just carte blanche to go do what you want and continue to enjoy the same relationship with God you had before that. No, there's a break in the relationship, but it's not an irreversible break because what, what you can do to fix that is repentance. And and there's um, steps and stages involved in repentance. It's It, it involves confession. It involves... Uh, the sorrow that you feel before the Lord, but it also, if it's an interpersonal sin, it also involves going to that person, confessing it to them, and to the extent there's any sort of restitution required, then you do that too. So it's not an easy process. It's not just, a, oh, I feel bad about this for the next moment or two in my heart. No, no, no. It's, it's a grievous thing to me. It, the, as we say in the uh, Confession in right One, the burden is intolerable. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. So bad that I have to to go to the Lord and confess what I've done with a heavy, heavy heart. Not just, oh, hey, I've done this and this and this and this and this. It's not just listing things. It's literally feeling the weight of those sins upon you such that you can't live until you deal with those sins. And first, you deal with it before the Lord. And then second, if it's an interpersonal sin, then you have to go to that person. That's the weight of it. It's not a requirement and a rule and a law because it can easily turn into that. But but the 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 point of this form of repentance that I'm talking about is that you feel the weight of it so much that you literally can't bear not to atone for this, not to make some sort of restitution to the person that you've wronged. You understand sin at the right level. <laughs> That's probably the best way to say it. And so in that, then then you can be restored fully to relationship, and you can also understand the wonderful mercy of God for forgiveness because you understand how horrible sin is. And if you understand how serious and how horrible a matter sin is, then you can really experience mercy. It's like John Newton, Amazing Grace, right? God knew the weight of his sin. He'd been a slave trader an amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Might have been wealthy, might have been successful at what he did, but knew in the eyes of God what a wretch he was because of what he had done in participating in slave trafficking. So it's that sense that, that this is all designed for. So you receive the kind of mercy you sort of want. You choose how deep the mercy and the grace you receive is based on your own understanding of sin and the grievous nature of sin. So those are the first two. The next word, the Lord, the Lord, God, a name that denotes power as ruler over nature and humankind, indicating that God's mercy sometimes surpasses even the degree indicated by this name. In other words, it's so big. The mercy of God is as big as God. And that's a scary thing. It's it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that living God's mercy is as boundless as his judgment. And so that's a yes, thank you, Lord, because even for horrible sinners like me, there's enough mercy. It's not constrained. It's not, I haven't worn out and stretched the bounds of it beyond belief. Um, think about it. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer who committed murder. So you've got these people, and David's a man after God's own heart. So you, you can see God's mercy is boundless. And again, it's a really good thing that it is, because that's the kind of God we need. So the next word is compassionate. God's filled with loving sympathy for human frailty does not put people into situations of extreme temptation and eases the punishment of the guilty. Well, that's good, because what it says is God understands. He understands human frailty. He doesn't judge it by His own standards. He expects less of us at some level, uh, although that's not entirely true. He understands, though, human weakness. And that's the beauty of Jesus coming in flesh, becoming one of us and experiencing this life just like we did, yet without sin. So Jesus knows what it's like to live in this world as one of us. He's God and man at the same time, but we, we do ourselves a disservice whenever we discount the humanity of Jesus and the fact that He also suffered temptations, grievous temptations, horrible things. What a great temptation it would be to say no to the cross, that's the easiest one to even look at is to say, no, 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 I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. But he did. He persevered, and he did that. But God is compassionate with our human nature and doesn't put people into situations of extreme temptation. There's always an escape. There's always a way out. We need to lean on the Holy Spirit, and he eases punishment of the guilty. In other words, you don't die immediately in your (laughs) sin. The next word is gracious. God shows mercy even to those who don't deserve it, consoling the afflicted and raising up the oppressed. I deserve mercy. I'm positive of that. I'm relatively certain I know people who don't. (laughs) And that's part of my own fallen nature is to believe that I deserve mercy. Nobody deserves mercy. That's not the way it works, but God's... Um, gracious with those who don't deserve it. And that's the reason you look around and you think, well, why, why are all these wicked people in the world allowed to live? They don't seem to care about God. They don't seem to... No, things would be a lot worse for us if they didn't, and we would, more of us would die without ever coming to Him. Those that look like they're beyond God's mercy, beyond God's reach are the ones, the very ones, that come back sometimes with the most amazing stories to tell. And it's because of God's mercy. He, he eases the punishment of those who absolutely deserve it and brings us to himself in ways that only he understands or he, only he could pull off. The last thing is that he is slow to anger. God gives the sinner ample time to reflect, improve, and repent. Nowhere in my mind is that more clear than in two different places that, that the Egyptians had 400 years. While the Israelites were among them to repent, and so did all the people in the land. Because God said, I'm not going to drive those people out of the land and give it to my people. He makes his own people wait 400 years to possess the land that he has promised to Abraham to give them. And why does he say he didn't do that? It's because I have to wait until the sin of the Canaanites fills the land. It's got to be so bad that there's no way back. And so he is slow to anger. He gives people time to repent, but he gives them knowledge of himself all along the way, as Paul said, beginning with creation, the witness of creation. And so when we've rejected all those witnesses and our sin has polluted the land to the point where it's destroyed the land, then what does he do? He drove them out. But there's one other group of people that experienced God's slowness to anger with respect to the land, and that's his own people. Because what happens is they're taken out of the land in the time of Jeremiah. They're taken out of the land for how long? Seventy years. How did God arrive at that 70 years? He said, I'm going to take you out of the land one year for every Sabbath. You didn't allow the land. So for 490 years, they had failed to observe the law of God regarding the Sabbath, and they had Harmed the land by not giving the land its rest. So God was patient with them for 500 years almost before he brought down judgment on them. So slow to anger, yes, he is, but not forever. And then it says he's abundant in kindness. That's Hesed, that word that's so important to us. God is kind toward those who lack personal merits, providing more gifts and blessings than they deserve. If one's personal behavior is evenly balanced between virtue and sin, God tips the scales of justice toward the good. Now that's, a, that's an idea in Judaism that's not so much true in Christianity because we, it's not, we're not being judged on our own merits as far as eternal life is concerned. We're being judged on the merits of Jesus Christ in whom we put our faith and our trust but that's the same basic principle is is that that if i don't judge you harshly if i don't count your sins as weightier than your virtues than jesus's virtues then you still pass well he he grades on an enormous curve i can fail every test but jesus passed them all and so my faith is in him so as long as that's true then we know that that he is merciful in that way. The next thing is truth. God never reneges on his word to reward those who serve him. You can count on God's word. Jesus made a promise, count on it. He said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Count on that promise. Believe those things. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But believe that promise. Believe all the things that God promises and believe that God says, because those are always true. The last, not the last. But the next is the preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. That's that's a concept that you could just look at and think of it. Thousands of generations. Holy moly, I can't think more than about Two back and one forward, you know? It's just, there's not... So I'm glad he's got a big memory, and I'm glad he's eternal. So it, that helps a lot. And he's merciful. Yes, and he's merciful. <laughs> <laughs> because if he wasn't, there wouldn't be a next generation. <laughs> God remembers the deeds of the righteous for the benefit of their less virtuous generations of offspring. So, in other words, he brings forward the merits of the saints. Now, that can be a horrible kind of a thing, because that's what led actually to the Reformation was a Roman Catholic idea that, oh, wait a minute, we're the church, we have and we are the repository of the merits of the saints. So all the merits that the saints have had, had accumulated in their lifetime it, in, in excess of their need for virtue, we have those, we can now distribute those among you for a little price, and we can get you out of purgatory a lot quicker. And so there's only one whose merits actually count. those other things are less than perfect no matter what the saint what they've done but that's the way that judaism understands that is god remembers the deeds of the righteous for the benefit of the less virtuous generations and in us we would say absolutely he does (laughs) jesus's those are the ones that he remembers there's no limit to the thousands of generations that jesus merits will cover sin for the next thing is that he's a forgiver of iniquity. God forgives intentional sin resulting from an evil disposition as long as the sinner repents. It's hard in Judaism to get forgiveness for intentional sins. It's not easy in Christianity either. It costs Jesus' his life. But it's it's a call to us to remind ourselves that, that to willfully disregard the law of God and pursue something in, in, in contravention of that law... It, is a, is a much more weighty matter than unintentional sin. And then the, the next is forgiveness of willful sin. God allows even those who commit a sin with a malicious intent of rebelling against Him and anger Him the opportunity to repent. So it's not just a settled mind to go and do something. It's a settled mind to go and do something to make God mad. It's to say, I know exactly what the commandment is. It's, it, it's sort of like first-degree murder. Versus other kinds of murder? Because first degree murder is premeditated murder. I thought about this. I thought about everything to do with this. And, and I recognized the consequences. I recognized that what I was going to do was murder. And I said, yep. And then I went and did it. So it's not an act of passion, it's not an act of the moment. It's not an act of something really got to me and this happened, it, that's an, that can be an intentional sin. No, this is, this is I've decided to do this in spite of the fact that I know God's feelings on this, and in spite of the fact that this is I recognize God's right, and He' the lawgiver, and he has a right to be a lawgiver, but in this instance, doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. So that's willful sin. The next is forgiver of error. God forgives a sin committed out of carelessness, thoughtlessness, or apathy. I never am guilty of any of those kinds of sins. Carelessness, thoughtlessness, and apathy never describe me. They do, Suzanne, but not me. (laughs) So thank God He forgives that because that describes all of humanity and most of my day. (laughs) And then the last thing is who cleanses, God is merciful, gracious, and forgiving, wiping away the sins of those who truly repent. However, if one does not repent, God does not cleanse. So when we take all these things together, it becomes one of those things where you look at it and you go, he is a much better God than I ever actually really thought a whole lot about. I hadn't given enough consideration to how much mercy I really need until I see there's at least 13 different ways he shows it to me. That's pretty incredible. And so it's worthwhile, I think, to spend some time looking at these things. So within Judaism, just want to make this point right before we're done, is is that the the Kabbalists, the people who who are sort of— not the Kabbal, as in the way that it gets talked about in conspiracy theories. It's Kabbalah, which is Jewish mysticism. So the Jewish mystics, maybe it's a better way to say it, introduced the custom of also reciting the attributes of mercy before taking the Torah from the Ark during the three pilgrimage festivals of Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And there would be a good reason for that is because these are times of repentance. These are times when they're remembering things. And when you remember the goodness of God, you can't help but remember your own sinfulness. So if you recite the 13 attributes of mercy before you take the Torah out and begin to read it, then you've covered yourself at some level. It's sort of the, the kippurit, the covering of the ark. And so you've covered yourself by reading those things and reminding yourself of that. So that when the Torah, the law portion of the Torah is read to you, you're not covered in guilt and sin and death. So <clears throat> this then was followed by a silent prayer beginning, Master of the universe, fulfill my heartbeat requests for good, demonstrating an understanding that all too often one's personal goals are not for his or her benefit. And so they're they're pleading for mercy, but at the same time, it. It's an expression and the thing that matters and the reason to say these 13 things, that they say them in their services, is really important. It's the most important part. Not just remembering that God is merciful, but it's a remembrance that you're creating His image. And the expectation is that you will show these 13 attributes of mercy to others. So you bring them into the world by God bringing them into your life, and then you take them into the world by showing that mercy for others. So that's kind of what I wanted to cover today in the first segment of our journey together through the 13 attributes of divine mercy.